Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarang country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week we'll hear from Alison Pennington, an economist working for the Australia Institute at the Centre for Future Work. She spoke at the Labour History Conference that was held earlier this year in Bendigo. Alison talked about what the pandemic has meant for women in Australia, their involvement in the workforce, extra workload at home and the opportunity for reform. This talk was given before the recent change in government and is interesting to reflect on after hearing some of Labor's plans regarding childcare and domestic violence leave. But first, some union news. This week, Australian unions reported that Australia's gender pay gap remains deeply entrenched thanks to a decade of indifference from the previous Liberal government. That's according to the latest data released by the Workplace Gender Equity Agency, WGEA, this week. The Wages and Ages Mapping the Gender Pay Gap by Age Data report shows that men out-earn women across every generation. On average, women earn about $480 less per week than men largely due to women shouldering the majority of care responsibilities and making up 60% of workers reliant on award and minimum wages. The WGEA attributes 20% of the pay gap problem to women-dominated industries in care and education being undervalued and underpaid. The most significant shift in working patterns happens from age 35 onwards, when men are predominantly working full-time and women are predominantly working part-time or casually. Australian Council of Trade Unions President Michelle O'Neill said women will continue to earn $483.30 per week less than men until we address the under-evaluation and underpayment of women-dominated industries, including teaching, nursing and care, she said. It is simply not good enough that women continue to be paid less than men in this country. We should have made progress in the last decade under coalition governments, but instead we went backwards from 14th to 70th place on the Global Gender Pay Gap Index, Michelle O'Neill said. WGEA Director Mary Waldridge said that the pace of bridging the gender pay gap remains unacceptably slow. What we're seeing is, year on year, a very slight reduction in the gender pay gap, but the rate of change is glacial, she said. Wooldridge also said that the latest data set maps the changes in the gender pay gap throughout the working lives of women. It shows that there are crucial periods as women move through their working lives where the pay gap alters. The data gave us an insight that we hadn't had before about how that gender pay gap differs in different ages and stages of life, she said. We effectively have a reasonably small gender pay gap at the start of careers, but it's very significant by the later stage of careers at the ages of 45 to 64, which should be peak earning capacity time. At that point, we see a gender pay gap of over 30%, and that translates into over $40,000 per annum. The consequences of that disparity in pay for women's financial security are dire, according to Waldridge. The gender pay gap is the largest determinant of the gender superannuation gap and retirement savings. 
the biggest contributor to fixing the retirement savings gap is fundamentally addressing the gender pay gap because that's income and earnings year in year out being lost over an entire career. Having lost a decade of progress under the previous Liberal government, working women are demanding an urgent policy reset to deal with the gender pay gap. Michelle O'Neill said the union movement has welcomed the action already taken by the Albanese government in committing to providing 10 days of paid family and domestic violence leave, but more work is required. Without accessible and affordable early childhood education and care, women are forced into insecure and low-paid jobs. The fact that we have some of the most expensive early childhood education and care in the developed world is a huge contributing factor to the pay gap, she said. We look forward to working with the government to include gender equity in the Fair Work Act, implement all of the Respect at Work report recommendations, prohibit pay secrecy and roll out public reporting of pay gaps by employers, O'Neill said. According to Human Resources Director, the Queensland government is stepping up to ensure that female tradies are protected in the workplace as it accepts all 12 recommendations from a report of the Queensland Training Ombudsman. The report recommends several actions to ensure that all apprentices and trainees have supportive, healthy and safe work environments and ensure that where intervention is required, it happens in a coordinated and timely manner, said Queensland Training Ombudsman Jeff Favell in a statement. Seven out of the 12 recommendations from the Queensland Training Ombudsman's report relate to female apprentices as barriers for them continue to prevail in workplaces traditionally dominated by men. Unfortunately, we still have instances where trainees and apprentices, in particular women, are made to feel unsafe or uncomfortable in the workplace and this is simply not acceptable. Training and Skills Development Minister Di Farmer said, adding that female tradies' participation is only almost 5%. We must remove these barriers so trainees and apprentices can confidently complete their training. The recommendations detail ways on how to boost women's participation in the sector while also calling on engagement with Construction Skills Queensland, Energy Skills Queensland, the Furnishing Industry, the Motor Trades Association of Queensland and the upcoming Manufacturing Skills Queensland to develop strategies for the employment of more women. In addition, services will also be made available for apprentices so they can receive direct individual support in order to narrow the gap between male and female apprentices. A train-to-retain strategy will be implemented, which includes digital resources for apprentices and trainees and a triage service for all callers to the apprentice info line to provide individual support, Farmer said. We need to make sure that all apprentices and trainees, Queensland's future workforce, have positive training experiences so they go on to complete their qualifications, are confident in their abilities and can secure employment. Following the announcement, Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Chief Executive Anne-Marie Allen welcomed the government's steps, pointing out that they frequently receive help requests from female apprentices and trainees who were bullied and harassed at work. It's not a little fight on the job or a one-off incident. It's a consistent pattern of bad behaviour, bullying and sexual harassment, said Alan in a statement. The culture overall needs to be looked at, and I congratulate the government for taking action. Last week, Vice reported that on Thursday morning, public and Catholic school teachers went on strike together at the foot of New South Wales State Parliament steps for the first time since 1996. It's only my second year of teaching and I think the fact that I'm feeling burnt out already says a great deal about the profession itself, Vanji Pillai, a 24-year-old teacher, said. 
It's not fair on me as a young person. It's not fair on the kids that I teach. Already teachers are coming in and thinking, how long can I sustain and survive in this career? In the wake of the pandemic, teachers from across the ACT and New South Wales have suffered at the hands of a ballooning workload and tepid wage bumps. At the steps of New South Wales State Parliament on Thursday, they demanded the state government come to the table with a pay rise offer that accommodates projected inflation increases, which, according to the economists, could rise to 7% before the year is out, and a workable solution to teacher shortages and the increased workloads that are accompanying them. We are here because teachers are burnt out and fed up with our uncompetitive salaries and absolutely ridiculous workloads, Julia Mallon, a 30-year-old teacher, said. The strike emerged as the third instance of industrial action taken by teachers over the last seven months, as the profession has simmered to boiling point. The most recent strike action comes off the back of a proposed pay increase for the state's teachers made by the New South Wales government in its most recent state budget, which was handed down last week. The budget papers proposed a pay rise of just 3%, followed by another 3.5% increase next year, depending on productivity gains while Catholic school teachers have been trapped in a similar wage stagnation malaise. The New South Wales government proposal was met with a wave of outrage from across the profession. As a result, both the New South Wales Teachers Federation and the Australian Independent Education Union announced last week that members from across the state would walk out of classrooms for a 24-hour strike as they call for a wage increase of 7.5%, which would accommodate rising inflation. In a statement last week, New South Wales Teachers Federation President Angelo Gavrilatsos said the workers had no choice. Acting on uncompetitive salaries and unsustainable workloads is the only way to stop more teachers leaving and attract the people into the profession we need to fix the shortages, Gavrilatsos said. We asked the Premier to reconsider his decision to cap the pay of teachers at 3% when inflation is more than 5% and rising. Yet he did nothing. Shrinking wages and the modern complexities thrust upon teachers on the job have also led to a chronic worker shortage across the country. The unions say there are almost 12,000 staff vacancies across the state, almost half of which are reported to be in regional areas. It's an issue that union heads say just can't be solved until the state government pulls its head out of the sand and offers more attractive salaries. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Now let's hear from economist Alison Pennington from the Centre for Future Work about the impacts of the pandemic on women and the workforce. Um, so, a bit about me, western suburbs of Adelaide. Uh, I come from a working class family. We called ourselves working class. Uh, that became less common as I got older. So I guess I grew up in like the, the last embers of, a, of an independent, conscious working class culture. Um, so my main institutions growing up were unions, public schools, football clubs, I used to play footy, um, my dad was president, you know, community clubs, community halls, where are they? They used to exist, they used to be places we gathered. And um, the Semaphore Workers Club, still owned by the Communist Party in, in the western suburbs of Adelaide, 
and and folk bands. My parents played in um, folk bands, so think of Red Gum, uh, that kind of style. They're a lot of Celtic folk um, Indian music. So I thought, in the spirit of being honest, I wanted to sort of bring myself to the table because historians are, um, you know, there's like the the apex of like people who you look up to and like you know medical professionals are up there but like historians are really high for me because especially in times of huge profound crisis once in 100 year pandemics uh, you kind of you know all of like what happened what we did in the last periods and what happened after so as soon as this crisis hit I went straight to historians I'm like all right they've got the answers they know they're, they're thinking things through like or they've been they have thought these things through we, I, I, I'm not sure you guys might know the work of Tony Moore. Um, he's uh, someone I've been reading a lot of. And I think that's a really interesting and important piece, um, helping, uh, using history to help shed more light on the current experience of working people, the current look of our institutions like the ABCC, the way our courts um, function to still essentially criminalise basic organisation, uh, you know, we, whatever embers we had of democracy in our workplaces, is, uh, it's in a pretty worrying place right now. So this is a, a long introduction to the, the next, the actual topic. I'm going to fly the, femini- the feminist flag because uh, I think something pretty remarkable has been going on in this pandemic. I've been reading Zelda Prano's autobiography to give me a bit of strength at the moment. I like to do that when I'm feeling a bit, um, bit shit. Uh, and the stuff that she put up with and worked through is pretty phenomenal, pretty inspiring. And I was reminded of the second wave movement and all, of the, all, of, all that it set out to do. And it wanted to bring equality into the paid work sphere, but it also wanted to bring unpaid care work into visibility. Better, better compensation through income support payments. You know, we had the housework, uh, the wages for housework campaigns. And... So much was achieved in that second wave, and in many ways, in this reactionary period, we've lost a lot. But something has happened during this pandemic, which I think we should be conscious of, and that is that unpaid care work has been projected into the public domain in a way that we've never known. We have seen government and business have to acknowledge that the work that goes on in the home to create workers, the new, you know, the existing workers, the new ones that come. Uh, make them, you know, bring them back to work and feed them and clothe them, care for them. Suddenly, when lockdowns hit and this economy went on life support and the government had to step in, as it does in crisis, and inject billions and billions of dollars, uh, suddenly we had lots of spending going into things like doubling the rate of job seeker, uh, which was a recognition that the below poverty rates we have now weren't sufficient for, for humans to live on. Um, we had free childcare introduced. And when it came to reopening, Morrison's increased ramped up rhetoric about why teachers must get back to schools. No more uh, at home teaching. The pressure put on the teachers to get back was huge because of they're treated like babysitters of the economy, right? They're key economic players. We don't think, we, we understand their economic value, but we care about education for the expansion of the human mind and for education's intrinsic value um, and for all of the you know, ways it helps to build people's lives. So I think what we've seen, I'm, I, it's not following the structure of the presentation, I guess, because women's increasing workforce participation off the back of you know, 
decades of organisation in the union movement, women's labour movement. That's been one of the major labour market trends of the last few decades. Um, I was going to show you, but where women's labour force participation just continually, it continually grows. We, we took a hit during the, the pandemic. The corresponding um, trend is slightly declining male participation in the workforce because of the sorry state of our economy, very business-controlled economy. But women's entry into the workforce has been on fundamentally secondary lesser terms. They are more likely to be in part-time work when they are underemployed, they want to work more hours. They're more likely to be in casual, insecure jobs without access to paid leave entitlements. They are um, more likely to be on other forms of short-term contracts. They are uh, more likely to be, if they are in a workplace, to be working below a male um, in so more junior positions uh, where they have less power, uh, less opportunity, less respect. When they, the, when, as women have entered the workforce, Australia actually has one of the most gender segregated workforces in OECD. We have very high levels of education that say you can be whatever you want to be, you can do what you want to do, but if you look at the numbers, women are funneled into the same feminised industries time and time again, and they are systematically underpaid, right? Four of the five lowest paid industries in Australia are all feminised. Five out of five of the highest paid industries are male dominated. So women are working in the last few decades, two jobs. Right? And this is you know, the double burden, we've heard this concept before. They're working two jobs and they're getting less respect for that extra work. In terms of how we deal with talking about the secondary status of women in the workplace, I'm really, I've had my wits end with the whole cultural approach. We see that a lot in the media which is like, why do Australian women just always choose to be carers, always choose to stay home with kids? Or why won't fathers, on the other side, why won't fathers lift a finger and put in more work? You know, It's because our policies tell them that. We have designed all of our workplace and parental leave support systems in such a way that disincentivises fathers from, from doing any of the care work, the care labour in the home, and forces women to into those positions by way of their lower wage and their, and their worse uh, workforce condition. But it's more than that, because something that we're not... It's not about decisions made just in the, work, in the, in the home, which is a very, like, microeconomic, I guess, parallel we could make about looking at the problem. One of the major trends of Australia's neoliberal economy is it's highly... Uh, it's poor in research and development. It's not innovative. Our major new markets of the neoliberal period have been privatised social services. So early childhood care and education, aged care, disability care through the NDIS, the privatised vocational education system, for shame, what's happened to our TAFE system. But these, this is how the system is making, the economic system makes money now. It sort of parasitically lives off of human life. And it forces women more and more into the jobs that... Uh, by way of when the government handles a big contract to a supplier, they cream off the profit they want, they've pushed down the wages and they've pushed down the quality of the care. And that is, that's apparently market innovation. Like that's, what, that's what Australians, uh, you know, business lobbyists will call market innovation today. But what that does is it's, it's a choice that the government is making and our policies are doing in our name to say that sectional for-profit interests in the delivery of things like early childhood care and education are more important 
than affordability and access for all women, all families. So as an economist, I can very clearly say this is, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. This is not in our interest. If you want to increase GDP by $60 billion, let women work in the way that they want to work. Um, free early childhood care and education makes complete sense, folded into the public education system. But we have these powerful sectional interests that are occupying government uh, by way of having very strong inroads with the current government. Um, and those choices mean that women are priced out of being able to, to work, basically. It's a key barrier to their participation. It's not just choices, it's about like, choices in the family, it's about choices in government. You're listening to Stick Together, union news and social justice issues on your local community radio station. So what happened in the COVID pandemic? Uh, women lost jobs at a disproportionate level. They left the labour market at a high level during shutdowns because schools closed, kids had to be cared for. If women were working in the home, they were more likely to cut back on hours. Um, in particular in academia, this happened a lot. Women, went, they were the ones who went part-time and they stopped publishing as much because they had more to do. The burden of the explosion in caring and household work fell disproportionately on their shoulders. So blokes lifted their fingers a little bit more around caring for kids, quite often at the end of the day, when all the schooling had been done. But uh, the big explosion in caring for elderly, all the household tasks, that's disproportionately falling on women. Alongside that, you have increased psychosocial risks, violence and harassment, both on the job and at home. Along comes this amazing moment in Australian history where we had a conservative government come in and actually spend billions of dollars on keeping people afloat, you know, like income support payments, job seeker. Like I said, free childcare, housing support so that people weren't kicked out um, when they didn't pay their rent. And this is a pretty, it's a pretty remarkable moment. And I guess the question I ask is, is the genie out of the bottle? Are we, is this a moment for, uh, you know, putting on my feminist lens, which is to look at what the system has done responding to a crisis and the space that's been opened for uh, a more conscious approach and, uh, to putting some formal kind of containers or analysis around what has happened in a crisis, but actually something on our terms. Care work has been valorised. It's been pulled into a place where government itself has said, no, we need to spend the money on it. So we're kind of getting closer to the Nordic countries who are typically spending way more on parental support leave and, and education. You know, as an Anglophone country, we've fallen pretty far behind in that regard. But the question of who pays is really important. So uh, one of the major trends in this last, the last few decades is that Labor's share of all of the economic pie has been consistently declining, plunging since the mid-70s, the height of Labor militancy. Uh, we are at now at post-war record lows. Around 46% of GDP. On the other side of that coin, profits have never been stronger. We have record high profit levels, 29.2% of all national income created, attributed to profit rates. So the question is who pays for important work, reproductive work, social labour, caring labour? Is it always going to be government? Or what can we do by organising women workers and our alongside our brothers in the union movement to force employers to carry some of the costs. They clearly can because they're at record high profits. Devastated with the loss of Stuart McIntyre, that was one of the books I read as soon as this crisis hit, was Australia's Bold Experiment. 
And obviously I'm young and I didn't live in that time, uh, but it was pretty powerful to go back and read about all the cool shit that we did in the 1940s, you know, and, and, and the, the institutions that helped to create that, that moment. And so I began to develop kind of breathe life or keep Stuart's work going by asking what is the equivalent of this post-COVID reconstruction that we need? We certainly are at a point where stagnant wages, low business investment, there are so many indicators that this, this economy is on life support and it's going to take a massive reconstruction effort. For women, when the crisis hit, I wrote the piece on what a women's reconstruction would look like. It's macroeconomic, it's across you know, social and economic areas, but it was for the ACTU and all of its affiliates, and uh, that's where I sort of started fleshing it out. What is a, women, a women-led reconstruction? A massive public investment uh, into key areas of rebuilding our economy and society that are in the interest of finishing off what we haven't finished yet in the women's movement, which is uh, expanding economic opportunity, paying for care work in some way, whether that be income supports for people who are staying in the home or caring for people, high caring support payments, or decent parental leave systems, free education. I think this ambitious public spending we need, it's part of finishing off that. Historic requirement to continue the fight. We have to invest in social infrastructure. This is a term we're using more and more in economics. Social infrastructure. What is that? It's the stuff of human life. Like it should be industry policy. Like it's not just smokestacks. We definitely need to, we have to rebuild manufacturing, but we need good like public sector industries in, in human services. Free childcare. We should be attaching the requirement of providing good jobs for women with the billions of dollars that we hand out to businesses to, to deliver services. It's very simple. Strength and income security payments. National public housing construction. We need that national public housing reconstruction moment. I think that was the part of Stuart's book where it said that was the least strong of all of the federal-led programs. States will probably have to do it. And we have to rebuild our TAFE system um, and allow women to get access to that. Empowered workers to build it. Of course, government can't give anything on hire. We have to build the power of people to fight to do that. And women make up the majority of union members now. So this is, this is the future. The future of job growth, it's in feminised industries. Healthcare is the fastest growing uh, industry. 250,000 jobs will be created in the next five years. Uh, so that question of, um, for, like me, I'm a heavy materialist. I look at the data and I think, look, it's already in motion. Women are the majority of union members. The future of union is women. And of course, uh, an organised labour movement is important to bringing about the next stage, the next step in women's rights, economic and social rights. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to Alison Pennington for her interesting insights. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 0394198377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.